We welcome you to Sunday Night Bible Study, and we are in Lamentations tonight. Lamentations chapter 1. It's right after Jeremiah, so you should know where that is by now. Regulars should. So Lamentations chapter 1, we will be doing this entire book because it is five chapters. And then next week, Pastor Mike is going to begin Ezekiel and take you guys through that book. So Lamentations 2 nights. Let us pray. God, there are many people in this world suffering, mourning, lamenting. Heartaches, broken people, ruined lives, or why you died on Calvary. Yet, Lord, we have this hope that by your wounds we are healed. And so I pray that you would resurrect hearts into the hope of your future, that tomorrow would mean you that there would be reason to go on. Lord, grace your people. Grace your people of compassion for those that are suffering. And grace them with hope for those that are suffering. So give us wisdom, Father, as we go through these mournful words within lamentations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it has been said that where graves are, resurrection is possible. So if there's no graves, it goes to reason, then there will be no resurrection. And also, if there is no wound, there will be no healing. Now, the book of Lamentations is a collection of funeral songs. The funeral is sung for the city of Jerusalem itself. And as we had finished the book of Jeremiah... We saw that in chapter 52, the final chapter, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Babylonian nation, also known as the Chaldeans, had come and ruined the city, uh, chased people out, exported a ton of the best of the citizens up to Babylon, um, and desecrated women and children, and burned the temple and dismantled it and took all the valuables and left. So they basically left the city Um, vandalized and destroyed and ruined. And so Lamentations is five laments. Each chapter represents one. They're five laments for the city and for the people of God and the disaster that has come upon them. So what we are looking at, what we're reading in Lamentations, is the emptiness of Jerusalem's past and future. Tragedy has happened And now the days are empty, and there's nothing to fill them but tears, laments, whys, and anguish and pain. That's what fills Jerusalem and its people. So that's that's a grim book we now step into. And tonight's message is called Sharing in Suffering. Sharing in Suffering. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, I do want to... Um, tell you guys and remind myself that when I teach you, I don't teach you as one who is learned. I teach you as one who is learning. Okay? Please understand that. I don't, I don't talk about sharing and suffering tonight and the book of Lamentations as though I have had a deep history and here I'm the expert and you're all so lucky. <laughs> Not at all. I, I look at Lamentations as some of us would and kind of look at it and say, what is God saying through this? I may not have a ton of experience here, but we together can look at people who have had experience, the lamenters of Jerusalem. And so it is through this that we are, will be learning together. So with that said, um, Jeremiah, we... 
Um, I'm kind of doing this, uh, this book, Lamentations, as an add-on to Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is believed to be the writer of Lamentations. He would have seen the horror of the devastation of the city. And actually, tradition holds that Jeremiah went outside the gates of Jerusalem, north, the northern walls, outside there, and wept bitterly over the city. And there penned much of the lamentations. And it's called Jeremiah's Grotto, where he did this. Because he did this in a little knoll at the bottom of a hill, a hill which we today call Golgotha. So the hill in which Jesus was crucified. True or not, it is tradition. Um, and that's an interesting picture that we have the weeping prophet at the foot of where later the suffering prophet would pay for the sins of the world and answer the lament of lamentations. Well, one interesting fact about lamentations I must share with you is that Lamentations is part of a collection of scrolls, there's five of them, called the Migaloth. That's simply Hebrew for scroll. And it fell in a certain spot within the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament we have in our Bibles is the exact same as the Jewish Old Testament, save one difference. And that's merely the order that the books are in. In the Jewish Old Testament, you would have the first five books, like ours, Ma uh, Matthew, Mark, <laughs> um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's... I know where you live. Those first five books are called the Torah, instruction. Then the second section of the... Hebrew Old Testament would be the prophets. The prophets divided into two parts. You have the former prophets, which is Joshua, Judges, Kings, and Chronicles. And then you have the latter prophets, which is your big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. So that closes the prophets. And then comes a third section of the Hebrew Old Testament, the writings. And the writings have three different collections within them. The first collection of the writings is the book of truth. It begins with Psalms, goes to Job, and ends with Proverbs. Then you have what we're talking about here, the Megaloth. And that begins Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, our book, Ecclesiastes, and then Esther. And then the final section is, they just call it the other writings. And there you have Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And that ends the Hebrew Bible. So, in the Megaloth, we have Song of Solomon, we have Ruth, we have Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. These are five books they kept together because they were five books that were read during five specific feasts. So they became a form of liturgy that when the Jews had a certain feast, they would go to one of these five books and read one of these books at the specific feast. So the Song of Solomon was the book for the feast of Passover. So every year when they would have Passover, the Song of Solomon was read as part of the order of celebration. For Ruth was read during the Feast of Pentecost. So um, as they would gather, remember in Acts 2, Pentecost, the, where the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles there uh, in the temple, there would have been the readings of the book of Ruth. And... Um, for Ecclesiastes, that one was read during the Feast of Tabernacles, as all of Israel would gather around Jerusalem and camp in little tents to reenact their wilderness wanderings. The book of Ecclesiastes, an interesting correlation there, was the one that was read as they're camping out in the simplicity of life. And then Esther. 
Esther was obviously read during the feast, which was created out of the story of that book, the Feast of Purim. So they would read the book of Esther during the Feast of Purim. And Lamentations, Lamentations was the reading of a, not a feast, all these were feasts. It was reading, read during a fast called the Ninth of Av. The Ninth of Av, that's the day and the month. The Ninth of Av um, fell in, because their calendar is different, it fell in what's either our July or August. So depending on the year, it's in one of those months. And the ninth of Av was where they mourned the destruction of the temple by the Babylonian armies. So they held a 25-hour fast on the ninth of Av to mourn that moment. And as time went on, every single other tragedy that has befallen the Hebrew people was tagged on to this fast and mourned at the same time. So even today, when Jews will um, mourn and do the fast on the 9th of Av, they will mourn things like the Holocaust in World War II and all of the other disasters that have happened to the Jewish people. All of that is mourned as they fast on the 9th of Av. And Lamentations is a very fitting book to be part of your scripture reading during such a fast. So that there is where Lamentations falls into the Hebrew canon. It is part of a liturgy read during fasts and feasts. So um, with that said, let us uh, talk briefly about how the book is made and formed, and then we will get into the text itself. So Lamentations, naturally it deals with suffering because it is the lament of people that have been suffering And it's describing a city and a world that has been suffering. And when you read this book with an imaginative mind, you can't help but feel the anguish of a writer who feels like the end of the world had come in his lifetime. It's very apocalyptic in a sense. It sounds like this writer, everything has ended and the very world as we know it is changed. And there are even phrases in there that make you feel like he's experiencing hell itself. And whether it's coincidental or not, the phrase gnashing teeth is even used in Lamentations. So this is a very, 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 very dark book. And it's, it's depicting the most inhumane moments um, that you can witness. Um, and at the same time, it's your most humane moment because to suffer is to be human. But he's looking at a world that seems to have become inhumane. Mothers eating their children. And that's the worst of it, of course. So how is this book formed? It's a book, Lamentations and Suffering. Um, first of all, what you'll need to know about Lamentations is that it's anchored in history. It's anchored in history. The suffering of these people and of this book doesn't just float out there invisibly. And these people are wandering around life and suddenly they're slammed by this pain. And what on earth? Where did, why? And it didn't happen like that. It's rooted in history. Second uh, Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 both record the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and its destruction of the city and the temple. So there are points. And uh, one scholar went through the work and pointed out that in those narrative historical accounts, Second Kings and Jeremiah, that talk about the fall of Jerusalem, there's 11 specific points of history that you can correspond within the book of Lamentations itself. So this is very much connected to history, which is very important for a sufferer to know, is that your suffering is connected, it has an anchor, it has a root from an event and from a story. That if suffering is anchored in history, it means that suffering is but a chapter within a large story. And the sufferer needs to know that the suffering will not go on forever and ever and ever, but it's yet a chapter. And weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning because that's how the book ends. 
And so it's rooted in history because history is an ongoing story that's coming to a climax when it will end and all will be made right. And so Lamentations lets you know your suffering is not isolated. It's not something going on in your mind. It's rooted and anchored in reality in a place, space, and time. It's part of a story. Second, Lamentations is not only anchored in history, but it's mourned communally. These are what are called communal laments. It's not just about a person, not just Jeremiah saying, this is how I feel. He is writing on behalf of the nation. And you will find at times that it says we and our in the plural forms. So you know it's communal there. But what you'll also see is where it is singular, where the writing is I, I, I. It's usually being spoken from the daughter of Zion or the man of afflictions. Those are two characters within the book, two voices that are speaking as personifications of the community at large. The daughter of Zion is the people of Jerusalem. The man of affliction is the Jewish people who have been afflicted. It's their communal laments. And that's so important to understand that sufferers are not meant to lament on their own. To suffer in isolation is prison and hell. But to suffer communally brings dignity to your suffering. It brings a humanness to it. It tells the sufferer that your sufferings are not a condition of your weakness, but your sufferings are greater than your weakness. It's not because of some fault of yours that you're in this. It's greater than that. It's playing a bigger part to life. And when the community comes around a sufferer and the community enters into the suffering, it says something. It says the entire mass is consenting to the fact that this suffering has meaning and it has purpose. And we will help you get through it together. Third, it's anchored in history. It's mourned communally and it restores dignity. The Lamentations restore dignity to suffering. Because you may know that today, humanism, modern humanism, looks at suffering as something to the extent of an illness. An illness comes and it needs to be eliminated and conquered. That's how you deal with illness. It ought not to be there. Something caused it. We're going to fix it. We're going to get down to the root of that. Humanism looks at suffering as that. It says this ought not to be there. In our world, in our fantasy, this just, just doesn't exist. And it's obviously a lie in the face of reality because everybody suffers. Some more than others, but everybody experiences suffering. And the humanists want to look at that and say, well, we're going to find a way to eliminate this. You're like, it's just like a condition in you. It's like a problem. We're just going to eradicate it. And it makes the sufferer find zero meaning in his experience because it's just like an illness. It's something we can treat, something we can get rid of, something caused it. But the Lamentations want to restore dignity to the sufferer and say that that's not the case. Suffering happens to good and bad people for explainable reasons and unexplainable reasons. And that there is dignity in suffering. It is not a weakness to suffer. It is humanizing. It is strengthening. There is purpose and worth in that moment. And then fourth and finally, the Lamentations are written in a poetic genre called an acrostic. Acrostic. An acrostic, these are in the Psalms as well. An acrostic is a poem in which each verse begins with a different letter of the alphabet, usually successively. So that in Lamentations, you'll, 1 verse 1, how lonely sits the city. Um, in the Hebrew, that would start with their correlation of our A, Aleph. Verse 2, she weeps, that would begin with what's um, similar to our B. And then verse 3, C. Verse 4, D. So forth. That's how an acrostic works. Now, chapter 1 is an acrostic. You'll notice that there's 22 verses. 
our English translations did this well, at least our chapter verse. Sometimes you don't, wonder, you don't know how they did that. You think some guy is sitting in a, in a horse carriage or a buggy and sometimes misapplied where like a chapter break happens. But it happens well in the Lamentations. Um, 22 verses, why? There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So chapter one is one lament, going through the whole alphabet. Chapter two, 22 verses, it's one lament. Chapter three is also an acrostic, but you'll notice it has 66 verses. Why is that? That is because in chapter three, each letter of the alphabet gets three verses. So you just triple it up and it gets down to 66 verses. That is also an acrostic. Chapter four is an acrostic. And then chapter five is the only chapter that is not an acrostic. People don't know why. I read a couple of like ideas. People write back and forth. They're like, oh, this is just because you ran out of ideas. Or it's um, an intentional statement that, you know, the readers have to kind of solve things on their own. Or there's just different ideas. We don't really, who knows why. But it does end with 22 verses. So it may not be an acrostic specifically that it goes alphabetically, but it keeps the structure and form and length of the rest of the laments. So... Why an acrostic for sufferers? Well, an acrostic covers all the bases, A through Z, right? So an acrostic, these laments are exploring the theme of suffering from A to Z. That means the entirety, the totality, and the readers and those that mourn and lament with these laments are going progressively one step at a time as they explore the fullness of the theme. And they do it once, and they do it twice, and they do it thrice, four, and even in a sense, five times. And they have to go through it, and they get to see putting structure and order where it feels like there is none, explaining in detail where people kind of just want to scrape the surface. We don't want to get deep into this, but the laments, the acrostics, they force you to get deep into this theme. And also, A to Z promises that it stops at Z. Suffering doesn't go on to some infinite number of letters. It has an end. There are limits. There are boundaries to suffering. So, man, Jeremiah, what an author. He knows what he's doing as he writes this book, and that's our background as we look into it. So let's now um, go into some of the chapters. We'll read a little bit. I want to point out some things that stuck out to me, um, cool moments, and then we will pull out our, what I feel is God's word for the church and how we're to live with lamentations in our lives today. Okay, okay. So chapter one. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Contrast, it's lonely, it once was full. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So there's this great reversal, this great toppling down. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers she has none to comfort her all her friends have dealt treacherously with her they have become her enemies judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn. Even the roads are mourning. For none come to the, to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. The roads to Zion mourn. That's because when you would go to Zion as pilgrims that lived not in Jerusalem itself, but say in other regions of their land, at the festivals, specifically Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, they would 
pilgrimage, make a pilgrimage from their places up to Zion as they'd climb the hill and go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals in the temple. And it was a festive time. It was a celebration. And on the way to Zion, they would sing what are called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. Those 15 psalms are the psalms that pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem. And here we see that the roads are not singing in celebration. The roads are mourning and they're empty and they're desolate. There's no more pilgrimages being made. Jerusalem is neglected. It is ignored. Well, we go on to verse 18 and we see, I thought this was theologically key. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Remember, I, this is a person personifying the people. And they look at the ruins and they say, God is right for this because we brought this upon ourselves. Then in chapter, I'm sorry, uh, verse 22 Let all their evil doing come before you, God, and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So nations are taunting them and they've, of course, ravished the city. And this lamenter is saying, God, you deal with them as you've dealt with us. Bring the same disaster upon them. And that echoes Genesis 12, verse 3, where God told Abraham that I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It's going to be a good balance system. And because of what the nations have brought upon Israel, um, they're praying that God, you bring the same upon them. Now, the Psalms say this all the time too, right? We read the Psalms and, and David and the other Psalmists say things like, deal with my enemies, hurt them, hit them, bang them, send them to bad places and let them be, you know, consumed in the lion's maw and all things like that. And you're like, wow, uh, I don't know if we can pray this. Um, this is obviously pre-Christ or something. But listen, I've, what I've discovered in my life is that those prayers I relate to now. Now that I'm older, I guess. (laughs) And I actually can shout an amen to those verses. Not that I will destruction upon my enemy, but the very prayer itself demands that the prayer is doing nothing about it. He's not trying to hurt his enemies or bash them. All he can do with these human feelings is say, You do it, God. Whatever you're going to do, you do it. And he has to pray lest his hands take revenge. So we need to understand that there are times when we're human. And God knows that. He knows that we're but dust. And that it's for us to leave it to his hands. However our honest prayers sound. And so chapter 2. In this lament, we see that God has left his temple. Verse 7. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise the clamor in the house of the Lord as if on the day of a festival. So there was such a noise and ruckus coming out of the temple, but it wasn't the sounds of, thank you, God. It was the sounds of, Curse this God, pull down the temple, take the gold, slaughter the priests. It was a ruckus, just not the kind they were used to hearing in the temple. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line and did not restrain his hand from destroying. Um, Verse 13. No, go to 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Isn't that tragic? They're just dying right there in their mother's arms. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you? 
that I can comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Great question. What can be said to people in this condition? Who can heal them? Then in verse 20, if you have a weak stomach, plug your ears. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? So this is things that Jeremiah has seen is women are eating their children. There's just nothing to eat. Desperate times. Now, Deuteronomy 28 Verse 52, 28 verse 52 told Israel this was going to happen. Moses said, if you guys don't walk in God's ways, it's going to get so bad that they, an unnamed enemy, shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And this is how bad the man who is the most tender and most refined among you will begrudge food to his brother. He will become like an animal, a vicious wolf saying, this is my meat. Get away. And to the wife he embraces, he'll be the same. And to the last of the children whom he has left, everyone's going to become so selfish. Wives and children are looked at as enemies when it comes to food. So that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating. That just put another layer to that picture. He's not just selfish about food because they have food. He's eating one of his children and he won't even share it with his wife or kids. That's the, dis- that's the degree that God said is going to that Israel is going to be plunged into if they disobey his ways. And we see in Lamentations that that indeed had happened. Um, chapter three, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> <coughs> so chapter three, um, this is interesting. First one, I am the man who has seen affliction. Okay, so now there's this person, this embodiment of a sufferer who's going to talk up through verse 20. And (coughs) people uh, see in this a foreshadow of Jesus, who is the man who has seen affliction. So, um, and you're going to hear some of these verses. It sounds as though God is directly attacking this person. So he says things like this. I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he hunts his hand again and again the whole day long. He, and of course, he is God. God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about. And it goes on. And verse 10 is, I I like this picture. Uh, He is a, not that it's positive, but he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent me, set me as a target for his arrow. And so you see that this, this man who has seen affliction, he is the target and the instrument of God's wrath. And so that's what he goes on and he talks about. And then in verse 21, the tide changes. But... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now we're at the very center of the book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Are you crazy? Are you reading what's been said? It hasn't come to an end. They are new every morning. And then he has the audacity to say, great is your faithfulness. It hasn't flagged or wavered once. 
despite the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Amen. And that's what the sufferer realizes in this moment. He sees God and he gets it. That in the midst of pain and affliction and suffering, he sees that there's purpose and hope in the midst of it as he's writing acrostics, declaring that Z will come, the end will be here one day. Because I know that God is still over all of this. And his faithfulness hasn't let up. He has not vanished away. He is still here. He's with us, present amongst us in our suffering. And he's going to lead us to the end of it. He will have compassion. Because it's not of his will. It's not of his pleasure that he put such pain upon humanity. Well, that's the best part of the book. The rest is much of the same of the prior parts. And so, chapter 4, verse 3. Even jackals offer their breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. Now, In Job 39, verse 14, Job talks about the ostrich who leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot might crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. So that's the idea of the ostrich is they have this view that they didn't care for their young. And that's my people are like the ostriches, even jackals. Those are the scavenger, like little dogs that eat um, carcasses. And, you know, they, they inhabit desolate places and they're, they're dirty, dirty dogs. Even the jackals are kind to their young. Yet the people of Jerusalem have become very mean to their kids. Um, there's another, in chapter 4, there's another reference to eating your own children. In verse 22, Um, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So there's this little hope, verse 22, that this is going to be fixed one day, and then Edom's going to get it. Edom, of course, is a long separated brother from Israel. Um, And then chapter 5 ends like this. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us? That's just so tender. I, I, I don't know. Just earn this <coughs> pain and suffering. And just, God, just remember. Whatever you're going to do about it, just remember us. Remember this. Remember what you've done. And it ends on this note. Um, 20, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And a lot of the prophets end with climatic hope. God will fix everything. He will save us. There's sort of a question in the Lamentations. It's, God, will you do this? I mean, unless you're eternally angry and it's unanswered. The laments end unanswered. And we don't always get answers for our suffering. We just ask God to remember. Now, 
the Lamentations, as I look at this, I, I see that as a whole, they're, they're, Lamentations and Suffering, they're, they're working hand in hand, right? But the Lamentations never attempt to solve suffering. And as you read it, and as you look at it, and as you go back home and read it again, if you will, um, you're going to see they never try to solve suffering. There's no explanation for it, and there's no elimination of it. It's just there. So the Lamentations don't seek to solve suffering, but they do seek to share the suffering. And that is very clear. So there's no solving, there's no elimination, there's no explanation. There's just this, it's here, it's the elephant in the room, and let's sit together and deal with it. Let us share with one another this fact. And so the people read the Lamentations. There's no answers. It even ends with the question, you know, that uncertainty. And it says, share with me, as if the Lamentations were a living being, you know. Share it with me. And it's calling the whole community to gather and share it. Don't solve it. You might miss the purpose and the meaning and the dignity of it. But share in it. That is what the Lamentations are trying to do. Now, today we have a special word called compassion. You look at 332. This is back in the hope part. 332 says, But though God caused grief... He will, future tense, he will have compassion. Compassion is a powerful word. We throw it around sometimes. We call people compassionate and we desire compassion. And uh, we often think that compassion just simply means to feel something for someone else. You know, like, oh, I'm so sorry. And like, oh, you're so compassionate. Um, compassion literally, come means with and passion means suffer. So compassion means to suffer with or to enter into and share in someone's suffering. A compassionate person enters into, comes alongside of, and shares in their suffering. That is compassion. And that is a very hard task for all of us to do. We are into Bible band-aids. Well, you know the Lord works all things together for good, right? Like that fixed them. <laughs> Weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Look, great promises, needed promises. They need to be known. But do you really think that's compassionate? Do you really think that that helps a sufferer? How many times have you been in a, in a plight and you know these passages? And the most annoying thing in the world to you is to have the holier-than-thou people come to you and say, well, brother, just have faith because this verse says this. And you just want to slap them, but you don't have the energy or the passion to slap them. <laughs> Bible band-aids don't help deep wounds. And I know, like you're thinking, we, I am so guilty with you that we just, you know why we do that? Because we don't want to enter into their suffering with them. We want to keep it with them. How contrary when Paul himself in Romans 12, 15 says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer, well, he says weep, and weep with those who weep. He calls the entire community of believers do not isolate each other. That's called exile. Don't shove each other away. Have compassion. Enter into it with them. Bear it with them. Share it with them. Be with them. People need people in a world of pain. They need personal ministry, not impersonal ministry. Uh, well, I had a dream or, I, you know, the Bible, three points to how to fix this. They need a person who cares because their whole world and their mind is saying, there's nothing to live for tomorrow. Now, 
God will have compassion. And that indeed happened in Jesus. The incarnation, we talk theologically about how God had to become man, and this is how he forgave our sins. He went to the cross because there has to be blood for the remission of sins, and we have these theological explanations for how he had to become a man, but how about super practically? The bottom line is God became man because we needed to know that he understands and that he is with us. That is his compassion moment, is when the God of the universe becomes a human being and enters into the world of suffering and lives amongst us and shares in the suffering with us. And even more so, he takes it upon himself. As Isaiah 53 verse 4, you guys know this super well, you read it so many times. Surely he has borne our grief, our grief, he bore it, and he has carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He is the wounded healer who comes in to heal because he's not just putting band-aids on people, but he's actually transferring the pain and suffering from us to himself. He's entering in and he is sharing and he is caring well more, much more than we are. He has the heavier load in this deal. And then we see Jesus weep. John eleven thirty five, And he's at the tomb of Lazarus. And he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible. You all know that because, well, in here in Sunday school, I tell you to memorize something. <laughs> I did it. Jesus wept. Um, you can almost imagine that when Jesus is there at the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps, that there is this enormous sigh of relief from the entire universe, as if saying, oh, he weeps, he knows, he cares. It's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. He's here screaming alongside with us. And then he goes to the cross. And on the cross, his body is destroyed. It's dismantled, the flesh and all of it. And he is destroyed like the city of Jerusalem was. He enters into the lamentation scene on the cross. And as lamentations was read during their fast of mourning the destruction of the temple? Was it not the man on the cross who said, destroy this temple? And there he is destroyed. He is entering into the suffering of lamentations. And then when he resurrects three days later, he answers the unanswered lament. God, did you leave us off forever? Are you going to restore us? The resurrection puts the exclamation on the end of Lamentations and says, yes, it's over. I do care. And I entered into the suffering and I bore it with you. And as I showed you on the cross and the resurrection promises that it ends, it ends, it ends, that God does not cast us off forever, that his mercies are new every morning, that great is his faithfulness. Because he entered into the suffering and he also brought us out of it or will bring us out of it in our resurrection moment at the end of time. The emptiness, it has been said by one saint who died, the emptiness of the future and of the past can never be filled with words. The emptiness of the future and the past can never be filled with words. They must be filled with the presence of a man. And there's a world of sufferers. There are sufferers in our community. 
And the emptiness of the funeral song playing over their life cannot be filled with words. It can only be filled with the presence of humanity, of a man. And in a world of suffering where the only thing you have to look forward to in tomorrow is more pain, new wounds, it is a wonderful alternative to enter into that suffering with somebody, look them in the eye and say, I will be waiting for you tomorrow. You're not just looking forward to pain tomorrow. There will be a person with you. That's not a Bible band-aid. That is flesh. That is hope incarnated in flesh and blood. And you look at this person and you say, I know tomorrow has nothing for you and you don't even want to get out of bed because tomorrow and today is all pain. But I will be your tomorrow. You have something to live for. You have somebody there. Come alongside with me. And you come and you carry them and you walk with them. For the believer and the non-believer, you don't even have to preach at an unbelieving sufferer. You be Jesus next to them. They will get it. They will. And you have plenty of time in the future when they have a right mind to talk to them. But just be with them. You don't have to preach. Be there tomorrow. And maybe they will get to know through you the great man, who, the great God who became man to suffer alongside us. So this is what I want to challenge, invite us to think about, invite us to do, is to have compassion, to enter into and suffer alongside with someone, to be there tomorrow, to be their hope in flesh and blood. To do nothing more than to support. You don't need perfect words. You just need a heart willing to bleed. So as Paul said in Romans twelve fifteen, that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, but we would also weep with those who weep. God, I pray that you help us. Lord, for the heart that is in suffering, surround them with a community that will be with them. Stir compassion within our hearts. Lord, when we see sufferers, that we would enter into it with them. That we would literally take up our cross, as you said. Die to ourself for the sake of another's life. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are moved with compassion, like it said of Jesus.